Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. This is a selection from the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, and certainly is appropriate to be read any time, but especially at a time when we're observing the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read that which appears in light print, and then will you join me audibly when we read the part which is in bold print? For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Please bow your head as I pray. Father, we thank you that you initiated the process of reconciling us to yourself by sending Jesus to be our mediator. Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling your role perfectly and doing your mission completely. When from the cross you cried out, it is finished. You had paid for the sins of mankind in full on the cross. We thank you how we're reminded in this passage of scripture that through your resurrection, we are able to have your life in us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done for us. We also thank you, Lord, for instituting what we now know as the Lord's Supper. On the night you were betrayed, thank you, Jesus, that you've given us this ordinance whereby we can, in a way, preach the gospel through observing it until you come. Thank you that we are looking forward to your return. We have sung about it, Lord. Help us to eagerly await and not to do it with concern just for ourselves, but for those who do not yet know you, that you would stimulate us to share the good news that you are coming again. And for those who know you, they will, like we, attain to the resurrection of the dead to life eternal. Oh Lord, search me and know my heart. And try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. And let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We need you, Lord, every hour. We thank you that you live now to make intercession for us to the Father. Thank you that your blood covers all of our sin. And thank you, Lord, that when we do stray from following you, you come after us, you find us, and we repent. We come to you today saying, pinpoint any outstanding attitude or behavior or word that would separate us temporarily from you. And we confess that to you, Lord. Claiming the promise of your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us in Jesus, who is pure righteousness and who is the propitiation for our sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we ask that you will take of the Lord's Supper 
with us. If you are in an up-to-date relationship with him, please wait until everyone has been served, and then we will take the elements together. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus had prayed giving thanks for the bread as he instituted what we now know as the Lord's Supper, he took it and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup. And the Bible tells us that he took it and he said, this is, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to see some announcements, video announcements. And then after that, Ron Acton, who has presented himself to the elders probably about six weeks ago for consideration for elder in our church, is going to come and give his testimony of how he came to Christ, what his life has been like over the years intervening, and why he believes the Lord is calling him to be an elder here. The elders have unanimously agreed that he is hearing properly from the Lord and we're going to recommend him to you today as a candidate for that position, a very important position in our church of joining the elder team to give leadership to the church. We will vote on his becoming an elder next Sunday in each of the worship services. So Ron, come again, brother. It's the second, third time really, I guess I've heard this story, but it's awesome. I'm, I'm not growing tired of it at all. And I've heard it before in pieces, and you're going to really be blessed as Ron shares this with us. After he finishes, Pastor Sam's going to come and pray for Ron and for any others God puts on his heart. Thank you, Pastor Mike, and thank you all for hearing uh, a little bit of my testimony today. This is exciting. The first thing I do want to do and say is that 
Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. For the third week, we're looking at the second epistle of Peter. It's one of the more obscure parts of the New Testament, but it is very relevant to any era, but particularly to the era in which we find ourselves in this country and in this world. So it's been a good journey so far, and we trust it will continue today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 to get the context, and then we're really going to take an excursion from one word. We're going to look at a word that stands out in this passage of Scripture and is very important to us if we understand what it means. So, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow along beginning with the first verse of the first chapter of the letter from Peter to those who were in exile, as he describes them, they were aliens in a foreign land. Verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Three times in this section of Scripture, Peter employs words which are translated by our English word, knowledge. The last word which he chooses is a word, which does not deal simply with superficial knowledge, but it's more of a detached kind of knowledge, a knowledge that is not necessarily moved in the emotions. It's more a knowledge of the head. The first two times, however, he chooses the word which speaks of intimacy in relationship, that kind of relational knowledge that is introduced to us first in the Bible in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, where the Bible talks about how Adam knew his wife Eve, and out of the intimacy of their relationship, children were born. We know them as Cain and Abel. So what we're going to talk about today is what I'm describing as life's most important pursuit. The one thing that you will pursue that will result in the greatest reward is knowing God. When David was surrendering the throne and passing the baton to his son Solomon, he assembled all the leaders of Israel, all the military leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the economic leaders, all the leaders of Israel. And they were waiting, I'm sure, with a certain degree of anticipation to hear what kind of exhortation King David, this man after God's heart, would give to his son Solomon, who was going to succeed him as king of Israel. They perhaps were surprised at the simplicity of his advice. He says in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, Know the God of your father and serve him. I'm going to talk today about the imperative and important purpose that God has given to us, and that is to know God. In the New Testament, the Bible speaks about the importance of knowing God. I want to refer to an event that happened the night before Christ was crucified. He was with his closest friends. We know them as the apostles of Christ. They were in a room which had been reserved for them to observe the Passover. When they arrived there, they expected there, there would be a Gentile who was a slave or at least a servant of a Jewish family who owned that upper room. 
And it would be his responsibility, among others, to take a towel, put it around his waist, find a basin, fill it with water, and wash the dirty feet of those who were going to observe the Passover. When they arrived, there was no such person. And one of the apostles looked at the other, and they were all waiting on who would be the one who would assume this duty that no respectful, self-respecting Jewish male would assume. Jesus was watching this with great curiosity himself, anticipating what the response of these men would be. And to their amazement, he took the towel that was reserved for that slave, put it around his waist, got the basin of water, filled it with water, and then took it and began to wash their feet. They sat, sat there in silent astonishment as their master, their rabbi, the one whom they knew was the Son of God, was doing that to them. And then the writer, the gospel writer, John, makes this observation as he introduces that section in John 13. He said, having loved his own, and he was undoubtedly talking about these apostles, having loved these own until the end, he loved them all the way to the end of his life. When Jesus was on the cross, he said seven different things. One of the first things which he said, unable to gesture, with anything other than his head and his eyes, and with his voice give direction. He turned his head to the only one of those 12 apostles. We know that Judas had already betrayed him, so the number had shrunk to 11. But of those 11, when Jesus was arrested, they all turned tail and ran like cowards. But one of them had come with the mother of Jesus, he escorted her evidently to the place where her son was being brutalized and crucified on the cross. Jesus looked into this disciple's eyes. It was by the gospel writer of John's own description, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We have come to determine that he was John himself in a moment of humility and throughout the writing of the gospel, every once in a while, this figure who is a rather cryptic figure surfaces the one whom Jesus loved. As it turned out, it was the writer himself, John. He said to him, man, behold your mother. And he told his mother, behold your son. He transferred this most important relationship to Jesus in his earthliness to his mother. He transferred the responsibility from himself as the eldest son to John. John, the one whom Jesus loved. Have you ever wondered why that description is used of John the apostle? Did he not love the others? Well, of course he did. I just mentioned in the first verse of John 13 how this same one who is described as the apostle whom Jesus loved, said that he loved his own to the end, to the time he was on the cross. He was still loving them even though they had deserted him. He still cared deeply for them. It's a great picture, isn't it, of the unconditional nature of the love of Christ for us. We sang of the love of the Father earlier, and the Son resembles the love of the Father because He is God too. And as we think about the question, why is Jesus described in the way He is in John 13, 1, and then John also says He loved them all to the end, but John describes Himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Here's why. Jesus is no respecter of persons. This is the uniform testimony of the New Testament writers. He doesn't play favorites. However, Jesus does have those who are intimate in their relationship. And don't read anything ugly in that statement. It's just that he's closer to some people than he is to other, which begs the question, why would Jesus be closer to some than to others? 
for the same reason that Jesus is closer to some of us in this room today than others. In the book of John, chapter 14, verse 15, we hear John writing what Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Earlier in that same section, in the 13th chapter, this is what Jesus says to his disciples slash apostles. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus gave the commandment, and then he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that would cover a whole range of commandments, but it really focuses in the context upon the whole matter of our loving one another because it's a demonstration to the world that we're different from other people. If we love each other unconditionally, like Christ loved his men, even when they deserted him, even when they turned their backs on him, Jesus still loved them. In John 14, 21, Jesus goes on to say this, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is, who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Notice the connection. If you love him, you keep your commandments. If you keep his commandments, then he will do what? He will disclose himself more fully to you or to me as followers. So what we need to understand John knew Jesus better than anyone else. And it was directly related to his commitment to get to know the Lord, and his getting to know the Lord was related to his wanting to be obedient, especially in the matter of loving the other brothers. It was not an instant transition that John made from being a fisherman to the years when as he spent time with Jesus, he became more attached to Christ and listened to what Christ had to say, watched the way in which Christ Jesus, his Lord, dealt with others, especially those within that apostolic band. And then he began to catch that way of thinking, and he began to be that kind of disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved because he loved those whom Jesus loved love. Today, I want to explore with you the matter of life's most important pursuit, and that is knowing God. Why is God being known life's greatest pursuit? I'm going to ask that question and seek answers from the Word of God. Then we'll finish with the second and final question. How does one come to know God? We're going from that which might be considered theoretical to that which is practical. We need to begin with the foundation. Why is knowing God life's greatest pursuit? Let me answer that two ways. First of all, to know God is more valuable than anything else you or I will achieve or acquire in our lives. Let me appeal to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who is an all-out opponent of Jesus in his life. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says to a bunch of people who were just like him before he came to know Christ, they were depending on their goodness to get them into right relationship with God. They boasted about who they were religiously. And he says, if anyone else has a reason to put confidence in himself, look at me. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as if to say, I was the top of the food chain of the descendants of Abraham, of the people of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. I was one who was of the tribe of Benjamin. He spoke of his pedigree. He also spoke of the way he pursued his goal of being the greatest religionist of his day. 
as far as he was concerned in the world because he was a descendant of Abraham. He says it's for zeal persecuting the church. He was also self-described in this way. As the law was concerned, a Pharisee regarding legalistic righteousness, I was perfect. Can you imagine making such a claim that he was perfect in keeping the written law of God in what we know as the Old Testament? But not stopping there. All the other things which had been added on for generations by rabbis who were respected, all the additional rules put on top of those rules that were God's law. And he said, I was perfect. But he said, there came a time in my life when all that I put my life in perspective by being and doing became loss. It was like a pile of dung is what he actually said. And then he goes on to state what had become his life's desire. He says in the 10th and 11th verses of Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. Now, stop just a moment. How old do you suppose Paul was when he said this? Was he just beginning his walk with Christ? Not at all. He would have been, by most scholars' at calculation, about 60 years old. He'd been following Christ probably for 30 years, and he had gone through everything that you can imagine in terms of difficulty following Christ, but he was not daunted in his pursuit of knowing Christ. But he says at this point, I want to know Christ. Listen carefully. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you get to know him. And many people think, that's it. There's no more. I've arrived. I'm a child of God. And you are a child of God if you really trust Christ. But a lot of people never get out of kindergarten spiritually because they're not taught how to be mature in the faith. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Sure, we do too, don't we? We don't want to be mediocre in our walk with the Lord. We want to know him. We want the power. And that's usually where people quit quoting Paul in Philippians 3. Then he goes on to say, I also want to know what it is to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus. Do you know what? If you know Christ, you are going to encounter suffering because of what you come to know about him and your desire to make him known. You don't simply settle for knowing him, but you want to make him known. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for they shall be called sons of God, and theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Apostle Paul was this kind of man. In the book of Mark, the Bible says this. These are the words of Jesus. You know them. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Let me go back to the first thing that I mentioned as to why this is the most important pursuit of any human being's life. To know God is more valuable than any achievement or any acquisition that you will ever make. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Christ will never pass away. He goes on to say this in that same section. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The people who heard that responded, I know, in their soul to that word picture that Jesus painted. The picture would have been clear to them. It would have been the picture of scales. You've seen such scales. And the picture he paints is, if you were to place on one side of the scale all the world has to offer in terms of achievement and the accolades which go with it and acquisition and all the luxury and pleasure that goes with the acquisition. 
and you put one soul on the other side of that scale. In every situation, the scale would tip in favor of the soul. Do you know your soul is worth more than all you can get from the world? It is. Christ said as much. And he understands you, he knows you, and he knows how important it is for you to know him so that you'll get the order of things correct. There are evidence, this is a scripture, in fact, the apostle Paul says this in writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, God has given us who know Jesus everything richly to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what the Lord gives us, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from above. But Paul says in the book of Philippians, I know what it is to live in plenty. I know what it is to go hungry. I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Do you know what it means to be content when you're in the middle of a storm like COVID-19 and people around you are wringing their hands wondering what they're going to do? Do you know what it's like to have a disease strike you or a member of your family and it doesn't seem there's any hope for that person and sometimes the life is taken from that person. Many of you here know that. I know there are widows and widowers in this worship service today who know what quite well. How do you have contentment? Here's why. You know God through Jesus Christ. He is near the Bible says, in each and every situation in which we find ourselves, he is more valuable and the knowledge of him is far more valuable than what you wear, what you drive, where you live, all of that. All of that is of no value if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Reasoning from the lesser to the greater in answer to the question, why is knowing God life's greatest pursuit because to know God is to have eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In 1 John chapter 1, when John is writing about what he and Peter and the other apostles experienced, how they had seen the word of life, namely Jesus. They had touched him. He was not a ghost. He was a real human being, flesh and blood. But he was more than that. He goes on to describe him twice in the first four verses as, listen, the eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. And if you know Christ, you have eternal life. We know what Jesus said about this life in John chapter 10. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That would be the devil. But I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Jesus gives us enough and more in himself so that we can have eternal life. And knowing him is eternal life. So this pursuit of God in the person of Jesus Christ is eternal life. Jesus says also in the book of John to his men as they're deeply distressed at the suggestion that he's leaving them. And they've heard him talk about what that's going to mean to him. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And then Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the life. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now you have, you know him and you have seen me. And then Philip said, Lord, just show us the father. It's enough for us. And he says, have I been so long with you, Philip? 
and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, knowing Jesus is knowing God. Look at first verse of the epistle of 2 Peter one more time. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He was talking about as the apostles. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was clear to Peter, as it was clear to John and the other apostles, that Jesus was not God with a little g or God junior. Jesus was equally God to God the Father. And by the way, this is one of the early confessions of the church. He says about Jesus, he is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Central to the first 11 verses, if you look at it carefully, multiple times, Jesus is seen as the central figure. If we pursue the knowledge of God, we're going to be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, who is indeed God become man, fully God as well as fully man. Why is knowing God life's greatest pursuit? Because anything else you put stock in, Anything else that you pursue with more fervor than pursuing God is a wash. When you leave this world, you'll leave having settled for second best or third best or whatever best it might be. There's only one best, isn't there? And that's knowing God. That's what the Bible says. How does one come to know God? Simply put, by seeking God, going back to the day of Solomon's coronation, when his father said, know the God of your father. Now, let me stop here just a moment. How would he know the God of his father, David? Well, he was his son, after all. David was a busy man. He had a, lots of, son, a lot of sons and daughters. He didn't have as much time, probably, as he would have wished he had because he was leading the nation of Israel. But part of what he did with his life was record things that God gave him that we now have access to in the book of Psalms. So he could have known God by watching the example of his father, who was a man after God's own heart. But not only that, he would have undoubtedly been familiar with the Psalms which his father had penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had given David those words. So he got to know God. And you and I have that same capacity if we know Christ. He's given us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired those words. Not just of David, but in the Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are to seek God like David told Solomon to seek him. This is what he said. If you seek him, listen carefully. This is what David says. In 1 Chronicles 28 9, if you seek him, he will let you find him. Did you catch that? If you seek him, he will let you find him. I hope you know that what Ron Acton said is true. When he said, I was not pursuing God, I had no interest in God, I had no knowledge of God, but God was seeking me. He didn't say it directly, but indirectly, I'm sure you got the message. He sought him through his relatives in Midland. He sought him through Tony Evans. And there were probably other people that he doesn't know and won't know about until he gets to heaven who were praying for him to come to know Christ. There probably are a lot of people like that. But God moves in the hearts of people like we who know him to extend ourselves in the name of Jesus and in love for those people who don't know Christ to share the gospel of Christ with them. God seeks them. The Bible says in Romans 3, as Paul quotes the psalmist, he says this, 
There is no one who seeks God. None of us takes the first step to God. God always puts that desire in our heart. The Bible talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes how God has put eternity in the hearts of people so that they know there's something missing. And then he begins to stir in the hearts of people. And they want to know the truth. And the Spirit of God is involved in that. And then he sends people into their lives and gets them in contact with people who can share the gospel with them. And they are born again. And they come to know God as well. We are to seek God expectantly. That's what is said here. If you seek him, he will let you find him. We should expect if we seek him, we're going to find him. And that is so true. I have never known anyone who wanted to know God. And Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. If you know Christ, that happened to you. He sought you and you in response sought him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, God speaks through the prophet and he says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and catch this, knows me. The only thing I should ever brag about is that by the grace of God, I have come to know God through Jesus Christ. To him be the honor and the glory. And in Christ, when we get to know Jesus, we find true wisdom, not fleeting wisdom. If you study the history of philosophy, and I don't have much interest in it, frankly. I just have a very cursory understanding of it. It's a bunch of nonsense to me, most of it is. But when you study the history of philosophy, it's ever-changing, isn't it? People have spent their entire lives trying to figure life out without reference to knowing God. It's a wash. You can't do that. But this is what Scripture says. In Christ, we have wisdom. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He's our wisdom. And the Bible says in the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives abundantly to those who ask in faith. If you are needing to have wisdom in your life, you have to go no farther than God in Jesus Christ and plead with him for wisdom. And he will give you wisdom in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. True strength. That which people boast of includes their wisdom and their strength. True strength is to be found in Christ. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church in the Spirit of God, preserving that for us, he says we're in a battle and we're to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We have no power on our own. We are helpless and hopeless, but with Christ we have the necessary power to deal with adversarial situations in our lives. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against another person. It's against the authorities and powers of this dark world under the leadership and influence of the ruler of this world, Satan himself. Paul writes this, a verse that most of you could quote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who might that be? Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's living in you, if you know him. In the, early in that book, he says, I, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. I've alluded to that. And it comes with the presence of Christ. He strengthens us. What about true riches? The world does not offer true riches. But Jesus does. When you know him, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writes this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for your sake, in order that you might become rich. That's what Christ has done for you. What kind of riches? 
Well, the riches that no man can be taken away from, that, that cannot be taken away from any man. No one can take it away from you. Because the Bible says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Christ has given us all the great blessings, mercy, grace, love of God, adoption into his family, reconciliation, full redemption, no condemnation, on and on the list goes. Read your Bible. These are ours because we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to seek God expectantly, but we're to seek him single-mindedly. Once again, I refer to Paul from the book of Philippians, and he says this, on the heels of saying, I want to know Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, but one thing I do, I haven't achieved all this, he says, this is the great apostle, I haven't arrived. And he didn't arrive in this life until he went to heaven and he was freed from his own fleshliness. But what we need to understand, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on. He uses an athletic metaphor. I press on. I want to reach that goal. I want to know the Lord in this life. I stretch on to win the prize for which Christ has reserved for me at the finish line. This is what Paul understood, and this is what we also can understand. Jesus told two parables in the book of Matthew 13. One was verse 44, the other 45 and 46, about a man. This man had, was a treasure hunter, and he found this great treasure, and when he found it, he had to dig it up, and then he buried it again, and he went, and he liquidated all his resources. He cashed in all that he had, and he took all the money, and he bought that treasure. In the next two verses, he tells the parable of the pearl of great price. And similarly, a man who was a pearl merchant had looked all of his life for that one beautiful pearl that would make him rich. And he went and sold all that he had, and he was able to buy that. Do you know what the hidden treasure and the pearl represent? The person of Jesus Christ. Knowing God through Jesus Christ. That's what you and I are called to do. If we really want to pursue that which is something we can't earn nor do we deserve, but is given to us a gift, we must seek to know God, who is more than willing to reveal himself to us. As I finish today, I want to quote a very familiar verse. From the book of Revelation, Jesus is the speaker. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The meal that Jesus was speaking of, it was not breakfast. That was a really, rather hasty meal, eaten on the run, as it were. Nor was he talking about the lunchtime meal. It would have been the equivalent of a pail box, a food pail, or a sack lunch, but he was talking about the evening meal. What would happen at the end of the day after all the work was done and people settled down into their homes for that final meal? They would have a, a nice meal, nothing luxurious, but nice, but the thing that was really appealing was that they could be together and they could relate to each other. The knowledge of God is that kind of knowledge a knowledge that's a relational knowledge. It includes understanding some things that God is seen in the person of Christ. He did die for our sins. He was buried on, and on the third day he was raised from the dead according to the scripture. And we have to understand that intellectually, but we have to go beyond an intellectual grasp. We have to trust in him with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. Commit ourselves to grow in knowledge of him. There's a story in the book of Luke that you're familiar with, too. It's the story of Jesus and his apostles showing up at the house of a lady named Martha, her younger sister, Mary, and a younger brother, Lazarus. Martha busies herself 
in the kitchen to prepare a meal to serve the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But when she comes looking for her little sister who has escaped that chore, she finds her sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And she scolds Jesus for not reprimanding her little sister and telling her to get off her rear end and go into the kitchen and help with the meal. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are bothered and worried about many things, but your sister has found the only necessary thing. And it will not be taken away from her. It's the only thing to, I'm talking to you all now, and to myself. The only thing that will not be taken away from you and me when all is said and done it is the word of Christ, spending time with Christ. So here's the question for you and me today. How do you stack up in terms of spending time alone? Are you hungry to know God? The Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God. Do you have that kind of desire in your heart? That is the only way that you will find fulfillment in your life. And it begins by your acknowledging your need to trust Christ in this way. Give him your life and be on a journey that will live throughout this life and into the next of knowing God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask in Jesus' name that you would make each one of us more inclined to want to know you, that we would set aside time daily to know you. We would want to get alone every day to start the day. Open our Bible and ask you to teach us, to reveal yourself to us, so that we in turn could be used by you to help other seekers come to know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.